0: Welcome back to the New Books in Politics podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Uh Today we are joined by a reporter for The Atlantic and the author of the new book, Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World, Annie Lowry. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That is a slightly ambitious subhead.
1: (laughs) I totally agree. It's quite the subhead.
0: (laughs) Um, Can universal basic income literally end poverty?
1: Yeah, I mean, so this is one of the things that it's it's best at. So um, it feels kind of tautological, right? But but we actually have a lot of evidence showing um, that just giving people cash is a very effective and more to the point, very efficient way of getting them out of poverty. So we do this here in the United States through programs like the earned income tax credit. And then lower and middle income countries do this as well, um, often with these programs that are called conditional or unconditional cash cash transfers. So you just give people cash and lo and behold, they end up above uh, whether it's here in the United States, the poverty line or, or over there, the global extreme poverty line.
0: What's the catch?
1: So there's not much of a catch when it comes to the poverty question. Um, Cash is really, really effective. It already is really effective and used in multiple programs for doing this kind of thing. Um, Here in the U.S., you run into this issue, which is that if you're giving everybody cash and you're giving everybody the same amount, obviously it doesn't make sense to give somebody like Bill Gates the same amount of resources as, say, somebody who's homeless and has a couple kids. So you want to be able to preserve some progressivity and make sure that you're, you're being redistributive, right? You're, you're giving more money to people with more help. Um, you would need basically, you know, helpful policies, supportive policies to make sure UBI does that. But, you know, there's a pretty good argument that the United States could and and arguably should eliminate poverty, um, just, just by giving people money, um, to completely eliminate poverty through the tax code with cash transfers, um, would cost something like $200 billion a year, which is, it's a lot of money, but compared to, to how much the government spends, it's it's not a crazy amount. Um, the U.S. also has a lot of child poverty, which makes it very unusual among its rich country peers that have basically said we we don't want kids growing up in poverty. So you know, in a country like Denmark, the child poverty rate is about three or four percent. Here it's about twenty two percent, and so that there there's a really good argument for for going ahead and doing that.
0: Is, is there a concern about inflation that if you give everybody X amount of dollars that the value of that dollar is going to go down and therefore th- that person might still end up under the poverty line?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, cash is, is not magical. What we really want to do is increase purchasing power. Um, we don't have studies, really good studies about UBI and inflation specifically or price levels specifically. Um, I know of one study, um, but it's a pretty small study and it comes from Mexico. So I'm not sure it tells us that much. But, you know, imagine an economy that sort of looks like the economy we're talking about, um, the economy of the late 90s when the uh, the middle income and lower income families had a lot more purchasing power. Inflation was higher, but it was still just a better equilibrium. Um, and I would also note that, you know, this is a fiscal policy, right? So it's the government spending dollars. There'd also be monetary policy, which can tackle inflation more directly. Um, you know, the bigger issue, I actually think, is this concern that it would get eaten up by either health costs or by rent, um, by housing costs, and le- like not leave families better off in terms of just regular consumption and financial security. So again, you'd, you'd You'd probably need some other policies to help on that end.
0: Now, the history of this idea, this is not a new idea. This is not an idea that is strictly coming from the left, even though it sounds like a a big government idea. Um, In the book, uh, you trace the history of of, of this, and it's sort of an interesting uh, circuitous route that this idea has taken.
1: Yeah, so it it has a really long lineage, like a 500 year long lineage, um, <laughs> strong lineage on both the right and the left. And so on the right, you have this argument um, that the government shouldn't be paternalistic; the government shouldn't tell people what to do with their money. They should just give it to them. Um, you also have this idea that the government should be as small and efficient as possible. So you know, look at um, the Social Security Administration; um, it spends out of every hundred dollars that it spends. 99.9. $99.99 uh, um, goes just straight to cash like you know just straight to to, to um, older Americans whereas you know something like HHS um, which is the Health and Human Services Agency it administers Medicaid and Medicare it, it actually has a pretty um, heavy burden of administrators and, and paperwork so that's the other argument then on the, the left you know you just have a more straightforwardly anti-poverty and pro-middle class you know do more redistribution type argument Um, And there's a lot of debate about, you know, to what extent you can make both liberals and and conservatives happy with UBI. Um, I don't think you can because I think the amount of money that you're spending is is ultimately the most important thing.
0: But it it is inherently redistributed, redistributive. (laughs) And it seems like conservatives from 50 years ago weren't offended by that the way conservatives are today. Is that is that a fair uh, assumption?
1: Yeah. I mean, so Richard Nixon, of all people, really liked this idea. And he was actually even more enamored of kind of a cousin idea, which is called a guaranteed minimum income, where you use the tax code to make sure that nobody is in poverty. Richard Nixon, like, tried to make this um, government policy and for a bunch of complicated reasons, it failed. Um and yeah, you know, in the past, um, there has been a sort of less libertarian, less small government Republican Party. You can even, you know, I remember—I'm old enough to remember—George W. Bush actually um, wanted to expand the food stamp program and reduce stigma in it um, to increase participation and in uptake rates. Um, and that, you know, that wasn't long ago at all. And so, you know, we we have Republicans now who um, have targeted these programs. Really want them to be smaller but that that certainly wasn't always true
0: so is there any coalition for this idea now that goes beyond just traditional progressive democrats is there still is there hope for some kind of ideologically heterogeneous coalition that getting getting behind this idea
1: yeah. So this is um, a really popular idea in Silicon Valley where they kind of bring a sort of third bucket of interest to it, which is that they're concerned that robots are going to take all of our jobs. And so you're going to need some kind of policy to help ensure um, that families stay afloat in that world. Um, that tends to be a kind of libertarian, liberalitarian coalition of people who perhaps don't want a lot of government um. Uh, sort of paternalism, but also are comfortable with a larger safety net. And so um, there's interest in it coming from that. But in Washington, you know, my expectation of what you might see with this is that you'll have Democratic politicians start to push for it, which in some cases they already had. And just given the, the nature of polarization in the United States, you'll see an immediate counter reaction and very strong co- conservative opposition to it. Um, you know, on kind of smaller policies, so, say, cash grants for kids, like let's eliminate child poverty. Let's do that with a loosely means-tested cash grant for kids. Um, you know, there I think that you could see some some conservatives support it. You already have very conservative senators. Um, so, you know, most notably Mike Lee and Marco Rubio, who've proposed doing something like that um, through the child tax credit. So, you know, I think that you could get some kind of um, bipartisan interest in some of these policies. But, you know, Washington is just not set up for bipartisanship right now. There's a lot of really strong forces pushing against it. So so I, I wouldn't hold my breath on that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned that there's a push for this among Silicon Valley executives um, in reaction to uh, the automi- auto, uh, uh automizing work, rise of robots, uh, perhaps some uh, some guilt amongst those people that they are, are causing the uh, decimation of certain industries and wanting to compensate for it in some way. Um, now, Joe Biden, who uh, former vice president, uh, might run for president in uh, twenty twenty. He put out um, uh, a statement and uh, and some additional documentation about his own ideas for. Uh, Uh, helping the middle class, where he specifically criticized universal basic income, uh, saying, while I appreciate the concerns from Silicon Valley executives about what their innovations may do to American incomes, I believe they're selling American workers short. The future will not change the enduring American values that got us here. Uh, Our children and grandchildren deserve the promise we've had, the skills to get ahead, the chance to earn a paycheck and stage out the rewards hard work. So his concern, Biden's concern, is that this sends a message that you don't need to work. Um, The robot's going to do everything. You can just sit around and collect your paycheck. Uh, But your subhead says this is going to revolutionize work. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah. So um, I think that Biden gets to a really interesting and important issue, which is that, you know, say that you have a middle class job, Um, and automation sort of takes that job away and say you were, you were earning a a good salary, you know, $70,000 a year, $60,000 a year. And instead the government comes and says, okay, we're going to give you a thousand dollar a month check. Um, you're not, you're not better off first of all, you're making less money, which is a huge deal. And second of all, like you, you probably want to be working. You don't want to be sitting at home on the dole. People really like working. It's really important to people to work. And that's true even for really low income Americans. Um, but, um, I think that the idea is that, you know, if automation were to sort of change work, um, that perhaps you would need, um, you know, sort of different societal, economic, and government structures. Um, so, say that the robots were to reduce the need for work overall. You know, there are still really important and beneficial things that you could be doing. Things that don't tend to be paid, though, right? Like taking care of kids, taking care of the elderly. Um, and so, uh, you know, would it, would our very conception of work change? And I think that that would need to happen. Um, Before um, or at least at the same time that you were you were having that kind of change in, in which the government was more straightforwardly supporting more folks. Um, you know, if automation doesn't really increase unemployment so much, but instead suppresses wages, which is what we've seen thus far, you know, the unemployment rate is only 3.9%, um, then government policy like a UBI or, or like an, you know, expanded earned income tax credit might might be a better um, a better way to go about it. Because, you know, I do think that we just, we don't know the way that um, automation and AI are going to change the workforce yet. It's, it's, you know, we're not seeing mass job lessness yet. Um, and so I just think that there's a bunch of question marks, but it's really interesting to think about our conception of work changing, right? Like capitalism is only 500 years old or so. Um, it's, it's a blink of the eye in in human history. And so it's not impossible to imagine um, movement to an entirely different economic system. So, you know, hopefully not back to feudalism, that would that would be a bit of a bummer, but, um, you know, to something else better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, I've also, so Biden comes from more of a, uh, you know, democratic establishment perspective, he, and he's trying to speak to, trying to show that he knows what you know, working-class Americans want. They want the dignity of a job and a a paycheck. Um, There's also criticism of of UBI from socialist corners. Uh, uh, Jacobin Magazine had a couple of essays Mm -hmm. recently. Um, Daniel Zamora said... uh, this proposal makes no attempt to help those out of job get one tomorrow or improve the job they have. Uh, everything suggests the opposite will happen. The UBI will function like a war machine for lowering wages and spreading precarious work. I- is that a fair um, concern uh, from uh, UBI critics?
1: It's an interesting concern, but I disagree with it, right? So you can kind of think of UBI as sort of being like a strike wage. So um, it makes some intuitive sense that if an employer knows that you're receiving $1,000 a month, that they might pay you less, right? They might say, oh, you know, over the next couple of years, we're going to reduce your your wage increases by 750 bucks because we know that you have that thousand dollars, right? Like that, that, that makes some sense. But the opposite argument is also true. If you, if you have a thousand dollars a month, you might refuse to take a job that's paying $8 an hour and is dangerous and degrading, right? Like you, you have more choice. Um, and so I think that there's a way in which a UBI would actually raise wages and improve working conditions. Um, that said, I think that there is a tension, and you know, I'm not even sure how how I think about this. I don't I don't have a good unified theory yet, which is that on the one hand, people really do like working um, and really do find dignity in work. There's this really great study that shows that older folks, when they stop calling themselves unemployed and start calling themselves retired, get happier, like actually have less cortisol in their blood, type happier. Um, But on the other hand, um, I also think that it's kind of patronizing to say that, that there's dignity in work. I think we need to acknowledge that a lot of jobs are just really crummy jobs. They're dangerous. People are only doing them to keep their heads above water. And so, you know, to say, well, we need to make sure that everybody has work and that it's good work, you know, it's just, again, it's this thing that, that, that I feel like I, I, I go back and forth on whether I think it's, it's better to give people money or give people a job. And I'm not exactly sure either, you know, like what the government's responsibility is there societally, what we'll decide is the government's responsibility there
0: um and you touch upon that in the book uh the the notion of a job guarantee which is different than you know universal basic income while you're, you're guaranteeing money or guaranteeing work um another essay in, in uh jacobin uh by a by a few people uh argued for that uh saying that their proposal for a federal job guarantee would pay minimum annual wage of at least $23,000 poverty line for a family of four many UBI proposals promise $10,000 annually um this plan would break the link between employment and money, but does so at half the rate that would be available under a federal job guarantee. And as far as other people thinking about running for president, um, uh, I, I believe Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, uh, I, I think Gillibrand, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. uh, yep. uh, they've all gotten behind at least some sort of pilot version of federal job guarantee, and they've not gotten behind Universal basic income. Is there a reason why job guarantee is sort of the hot, is a bit more of the of the of the buzzier issue in democratic presidential circles? And is there a downside to that that if you're if you are saying some work is crummy work, is guaranteeing crummy work necessarily a good idea?
1: Yeah, so it's been fascinating watching the left kind of Attach and glom onto this idea, and I think that part of the reason that they have done so is that you've seen this this real Republican insistence on the dignity of work, the attachment of work requirements to programs that have never had them, like Medicaid. Um, and so I think that it's kind of a way, it's sort of a triangulation of saying, well, hey, Republicans, you want everybody to have a job? We're saying, okay, we're going to help you have a job. We're going to make sure that you have a job. We're going to provide that. Um, my skepticism of a job guarantee is that it's, it's going to require the government to come up with millions and millions and millions of jobs. Um, and you run into these questions of, well, how do you deal with folks with language and literacy challenges? Um, uh, the jobs that are kind of socially useful and necessary, so maybe child care and elder care, um, are those the same jobs that would be good for the out-of-work population to be doing? Um, the government would need to provide jobs in every zip code in the country. It's just a, it's a really big and expensive undertaking. It would require, you know, just a huge new bureaucracy. We would expect the Department of Labor to become like the size of the Department of Defense. And that's not necessarily to say it's not worth doing, but it's a lot more of a complicated and difficult undertaking than just giving people cash, which the government already does and is very good at. Um, And so what I would expect to see is is actually instead of kind of a top-down approach, this is, you know, what's in Booker and Sanders' bill is this bottom-up approach, right? Like, let's have, let's give money to state and local governments to create transitional jobs initiatives. Um, We already have a number of really great ones, especially for people who've been recently incarcerated to make sure they're connecting with the workforce. But I imagine it would take a long time to kind of scale up um and so you know um i think that that's kind of the political frame for it and i do think that you have you know booker has suggested that he's open to ubi barack obama recently got behind the idea and so i think it'll be an interesting thing to watch going forward if you if you have just even you know kind of centrist liberals really going for these ideas that until very recently were considered quite far left, um, to watch how that shakes out in 2020, um, especially if the economy weakens, which, you know, some forecasters are expecting uh, that to happen.
0: We're talking with Annie Lowry, author of the new book, Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty Revolutionize Work and Remake the World, published by Crown. Um, Another, so you have certain criticisms from, you know, the representatives of, of the lunch pail crowd. You have certain criticisms from the socialist crowd. Uh, there's also criticisms from the deficit hawk crowd. Um, but Hillary Clinton, you know, she, um, she said after the 2016 campaign that she, in fact, thought very seriously about. Uh, having an idea like that. They were going to call it Alaska for America because Alaska has a sort of version of this uh, as far as spreading out the, the oil revenues there. Uh, but she said in an interview, uh, to provide a meaningful, meaningful dividend to each year to every citizen, you'd have to raise enormous sums of money. And that would mean a lot of new taxes are cannibalizing other important programs. We decided it was exciting, but not realistic. Uh, and then Josh Barrow, who writes for Business Insider, um, directly talking about uh, your book, made a sort of similar argument that um, uh, you, you could, in theory, shrink the amount of money that you um, offer, have some kind of a cap, uh, for, so it wouldn't go to people over $70,000. So in Barrow's wording, this would produce intense divisions between people who would work a lot and pay a lot of new taxes to finance the UBI, but wouldn't even get to Collect it. It would mean the UBI was not actually uh, universal. So, is there a way out of that box that it, either it's too much money, and or if you, or or if you try to do it on the cheap, that it's not universal anymore. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, so I think that the argument that there isn't enough money is is pretty bunk. Um, I'm not saying that this is easy to do, but I think this is ma- like more a matter of, of will than mathematics. So first of all, federal government doesn't need to balance its budget. So there's this question as to how much you can finance um, through debt versus how much you need to be paying for. Um, federal government also spends a lot on things that are probably not super socially useful. Um, on defense, we spend just a huge amount of money on defense, um, vastly more than our peers in terms of a percentage of government spending or of GDP. Um, so one can imagine spending less on that. Um, there's always the question of you know, what kind of UBI you're talking about. If in fact, it's just a minimum income that's you know, um, administered through the tax code, the sum is really small and the benefit would be really large. Um, $200 billion is not a tremendous amount of money for the government to raise. It wouldn't be a crazy thing for them to totally just charge to the credit card, right? Um, even if we are talking about the fullest of full fat UBIs on top of everything else, which again, really, people aren't even suggesting that. Um, so I sort of, you know, question. Um, you know, we would have to raise our tax rates to come in line with other social democracies. It would turn us into a social democracy. We'd need taxes like that. You probably wouldn't want to finance that through the federal income tax code. Um, so you'd be looking more at wealth taxes, at financial transaction taxes, um, potentially at something like a VAT. Um, so again, I'm not saying that that's popular, but the idea that there isn't enough money out there is, is just flatly false. There's plenty, right? Like <laughs> we might decide that we don't want, you know, sort of a French style tax code and French style social spending. But if we do, you know, you're not going to choke the entire economy by, by implementing a VAT, um, raising uh, the estate tax, that kind of thing.
0: But it seems like what you're saying is we are moving into a phase of the economy that is a little unchartered. We don't know exactly how automation is going to go. We don't know exactly how the fe- what the future of work looks like. But we're going to have to make some big decisions, and we have to then make a, a gut check. What are our country's values? Are we going to value uh, making sure everyone has enough money to live on, or are we going to make a different set of choices? Am I, am I summing you up correctly?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, a UBI is a tool that can be used to all sorts of different ends. Um it can supplant things or complement them. And so I always just I encourage people to to sort of identify what they're what they're really talking about here. Um a UBI to end poverty is different than a UBI um, that pays for care work and changes the economy in that way is different than a UBI that's aimed at the middle class, is different than a UBI that's designed to be just a pure form of social insurance. And so, um, you know, I think it's it's funny because it it's it often gets talked about as this kind of magic bullet. Um, and I'm, I'm just not sure that it can solve all of those problems at once. And so I think it's useful to kind of say, okay, what, what are you trying to do? And, and what is the cost and benefit? What are you willing to give up? What do you need to, to add? Um, and so it's an idea with a lot of, a lot of depth and breadth. Um, but I, I, I think that ultimately the question is, you know, which, which of these policies do we want to solve and what's the best way to get there?
0: uh in in your research and you mentioned there's different forms of it um did did you come to a conclusion that this is the best version of it or are you more agnostic about uh tr- just trying one and seeing how it goes
1: yeah i mean so for me the the thing that i found is that um, the evidence on cash transfers for poverty elimination is just overwhelming and really good. Um, the United States is the richest civilization the planet has ever known. Um, we elect to have very, very high rates of poverty, including child poverty. I'm a big fan of the idea of eliminating that. Um It wouldn't break the bank. Uh, I think it would be a good and a moral thing and ultimately a good thing for the economy to do. Um, And so, again, you know, like doing that through the tax code, creating sort of a UBI through the tax code, um... I think would be would be a great thing to do. It's it's less radical. But then I think starting to think about how we want the economy to change and what kind of prosperity we want to guarantee for people in this economy that continues as it has for decades to just deliver true gains to people up at the top of the income spectrum, people who are already holders of capital, um, but not lower down. You know, UBI is a, is a really fascinating way of looking what we have and looking at how we could do better in, in the future so that we're not afraid of robots and we're we're not afraid that there's going to be another recession and recovery in which the middle class is going to continue
0: to just sort of tread water. I should say this is your, your book, Give, uh, Give People Money, is not a dry economic tome. Uh, your research for this was not strictly just pouring through economic textbooks. You, you, you got out into the world uh, to see uh, how this might work in practice. Can you talk a little bit about your travels and, and how they informed your opinion, how they uh, shaped the book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um I took two kind of longer trips to Kenya where they're doing um a really exciting UBI pilot. They're guaranteeing people some money monthly um for 12 years. So, every month for 12 years, um a whole bunch of low-income Kenyans will be getting this cash. Um spent quite a while in India which has um a much bigger government safety net, but it's a pretty inefficient one. And so there's a lot of talk about instead of providing families with these kind of complicated gas subsidies or um, you know subsidized rice and and flour and grains, that you might instead just give them cash, and that was that was really great. And um, that travel that that happened internationally. Kind of funny, you know, in, in lower income countries, um, poverty is in some ways seen as a little bit more straightforward. There's not a lot of talk about how the poor are lazy. It's much more of an understanding that, that poor folks are just poor, you know, their parents were poor, their kids are poor, their communities are poor. Um, and so, you know, the best and most direct way to help them. There's just, you know, I think that there's more openness about that conversation there than there is here in the United States, where it tends to come with a lot of stigma and judgment. Then did a lot of travel in the US, you know, kind of I went in a driver'sless car, which was <laughs> really fun um but i think that you do and you know as a policy reporter who spends a lot of time behind a desk i think uh, getting out and talking to people um, and sort of making this real and saying, you know, these these government tax and transfer policies are ultimately about how households exist and how they experience the world um, and just asking people what they want. So centering the conversation on the people who would be most directly affected is is just a great thing to do. And, you know, showing a lot of curiosity about about people and what they want and 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 how their lives might be changed.
0: So where do you see the issue going from here? I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're talking 2018 um, presidential campaigns can be uh, – Drivers of ideas, the 2008 Democratic presidential primary very much popularized um, different ways for universal health care, including a, a public option, individual mandate. Those things were debated uh, then and then uh, became part of the policy debates once Barack Obama was president. And then in the Republican primary 2016, it's not perhaps as high minded a, a proposal, but build the wall was a big a big concept and obviously is dominating a lot of conversation since. Um Do we think that someone's going to take on this UBI banner in 2020? Are you seeing any congressional candidates in 2018 take on that banner? And if not, is there any kind of organized network seeking to find uh, a leader to, to carry the banner?
1: Yeah. So um, the city of Stockton in California is um, implementing a UBI pilot. Um, There's a big one being run in five states by the um, startup accelerator Y Combinator. Um, Chicago is looking at doing this. The state of Hawaii is looking at doing it. And so I think that there is some kind of laboratory of democracy type um, efforts to to implement and move forward on it. Um, It's hard to do without the federal income tax lever. Obviously, states, need to balance their budgets. So it's hard to undertake sort of big experiments like this. You would probably want federal financing at some point. Um, But you're seeing real policy interest in it um, and then, yeah, there's a, a number of politicians who, who are pushing for this type of thing. And I think with the rise of the DSA, um, which has many folks who are enamored of the idea, although not certainly not all of them, um, DSA, there is a lot.
0: Democratic Socialists of America? Yeah,
1: sorry, Democratic Socialists <laughs> of America. Um, uh, <laughs> that, that there is is more interest. You know, in terms of actual just sort of mainstream democratic politics, it seems to me that the first thing they're going to tackle if and when they come back into power is um, is Medicare for all and, and actually making, um, healthcare universal. Um, I think that probably, um, there will be some movement at some point towards reforming TANF, which is the welfare, cash welfare program. It's called the temporary assistance for needy families program. Um, it's a very judgmental one. Uh, it's very hard to use, um, it targets low-income moms, but it requires them to work. Um, you know, and and it's covered fewer and fewer of families with kids in poverty over time since it was reformed in 1996. So I think that that you'll see reforms around that, and perhaps also just around making programs like food stamps broader, easier to use, less sort of judgmental. So that's where I think that you see things going. But I feel like every week there's sort of more interest in this, more news about a new pilot, a new study, more criticism, and it's just been. Sort Sort of fascinating watching it sort of um, suddenly come into the mainstream. So I, I I'm very curious to see how this all shakes out.
0: <laughs> is, is there a risk of putting uh, so much hope at at municipal level UBI programs because as you mentioned, um, you, you don't get that benefit of federal debt financing. <laughs> if you're a, 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 any locality or even a state, you know they tend to have to have strict balanced budgets. So where do they even get the financing to provide? Uh, a real sufficient UBI.
1: It's really hard. It's really hard, and so Stockton is actually using private donated money for it. Um, it's just a tough thing to do um, at any kind of scale, um, because you know all of those state and local dollars they're they're allocated to other programs. Um, state and local budgets are just pretty tight, and so I think you're either going to have to see kind of private money come in. Or it's it's not hard to imagine that 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 a federal government, especially during a recession, might finance this type of thing. So, um, during the stimul- in the stimulus bill uh, that was passed to fight the recession in two thousand and eight. Um, There was a tiny little provision in it called the TANF, so the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Emergency Fund, TANF-EF. And states took this money. They were given huge amounts of latitude in how they used it. And a lot of them used it to subsidize jobs so that employers wouldn't fire people. And this ended up being one of the most successful and cost-effective parts of the entire bill. And it was just this wonderful. States took the money and they ran with it. Um, They just ensured that people, had these subsidized jobs either so that they wouldn't get fired or so that people could hire new people, and so I can imagine actually um, in the context of another stimulus, there might be this idea of okay, like let's give states some money and and let them use it to to whatever benefit they see. So I, I would expect in that world that you would see um, more liberal states um, again, Hawaii, which has already shown a lot of interest in this, or perhaps some other smaller and, and again more liberal states. You know, maybe a Vermont type thing, saying like, okay, we're taking this and we're going to do cash grants and we're going to see how that affects poverty um, while we're doing other things. Um, or, you know, just like if the federal government decided to make it a pilot project as part of its funding for TANF or its funding for food stamps, um, that, that would be a way that I could see that totally happening. But it is, it's just, it's so hard for states and local governments to do these kind of big pilots unless they have federal waivers or federal financing in some way or another
0: um so beyond the the nitty-gritty uh policy specifics, so what do you hope the average reader uh gets as a takeaway from your book
1: no i um it's it's a book that i think has some argument in it um but, but is perhaps not so strongly argued and i just find the idea to be really um there's a lot of Depth to it, you just end up thinking a lot of weird thoughts and thinking about a lot of weird things, right? Like, what if we did kind of count uncompensated labor in our national accounts, as you know Simon Kuznets thought about 80 years ago? Um, that that kind of stuff, right? Like, what if we had a government uh, that instead wanted to hire a bunch of people to do environmental restoration, and we wanted to devote like five percent of GDP a year to that? Um, UBI just takes you down all these kind of like weird cul-de-sacs. And that's what I found sort of reason that I wrote the book. And so I hope, you know, even if people aren't convinced by it, they're at least cause to to think sort of deeply about these things and you know sort of i wanted the idea to kind of be a jungle gym right like just go think interesting thoughts question your own assumptions learn about the history of what we have and why we have it and and how we could do better
0: the book is give people money how a universal basic income would end poverty revolutionize work and remake the world annie lowry thanks much for being on new books and politics
1: thank you so much for having me bill